Welcome to Wonders of History, Season 1, Episode 3, Manifest Melkart. When I was about nine years old, my dad brought me home something from the bookstore. It was a copy of Tales of Greek Heroes by Roger Laceland Green. Now this particular copy, the Puffin Classic Edition, had an introduction written by Rick Riordan, whose Percy Jackson series you probably read if you grew up during the 2000s like I did. My mom had recently got me to read The Lightning Thief, which was the first book in the series, and throughout my exploration of Riordan's world, tales of Greek heroes served as my guide to the misadventures of the Greek gods in modern America. That book is still on my shelf to this day. I mean, hell, even as I write this, I'm actually staring at the purple head of Medusa that's on the spine. And this story is definitely not unique to me. At least in my part of the world, the Greek gods are the most well-known of the old European pantheons, with the Norse gods coming in second, and that's because of their importance to Western culture. The founding texts of the Western tradition, the Iliad and the Odyssey, both center around Greek gods and heroes, and references to these figures are sprinkled all throughout pop culture, literature, art, movies, music, everywhere you look, really. I mean, the reason that my dad even gave me that book was because he was teaching those stories to his English students, and he wanted to share them with me as well. So I think we can all agree, you know, on some level, that in Western nations at least, everyone has a surface understanding of Greek mythology. But is our understanding really as complete as we like to think it is? The short answer is no, and the long answer is that the Greek pantheon we know so well is at least in part an amalgam, a mixture of the original Greek myths and the influences of cultures at the fringes of their ever-expanding world. And then you have to add to that all these filters from history, like Hellenism, Romanization, Christianity, and the quote-unquote rediscovery of the classics. You know, I'm talking about the Renaissance. And it becomes pretty clear just how far removed we are from those stories of Athena and Zeus and Aphrodite and all the rest. So after all that reminiscing on my part, you might be wondering where the hell exactly does this come into our story about the Carthaginians? I've got one word for you. Heracles. So we've briefly gone into this before in previous episodes, but whenever the Greeks encountered the Phoenicians or their culture, they often equated Melkart with the legendary Greek hero Heracles. And you remember Melkart, right? He's basically the patron deity of Tyre, and his worship has spread all across Phoenician settlements in the Mediterranean, like Gades, Utica, and the Tyrrhenian Islands. So I think it's safe to say that this Greek layer of interpretation is going to affect not only Greco-Punic relations, but also how we see Melkart to this day, isn't it? And just a little side note on Heracles here, you know, before we get into everything, I'm not going to be referring to him as Hercules, even though that's how he's more commonly known where I'm from, thanks to the whole Disney movie thing. And that's because Hercules is his Roman name, and in this period, the Romans really aren't relevant to our story yet, though they will be in the future. So for now, we'll stick to his Greek name, which is Heracles. How exactly is Heracles influenced by Melkart, then? For starters, you need look no further than his very appearance. 
When comparing the art and coinage of the Greek peoples to that of their Punic counterparts, Heracles and Melkart both, dressed in hides with beards and wild manes of hair, bear a striking resemblance. But this comparison by itself is some really lame evidence that definitely does not hold up to the historical method. Additional support for this theory comes from the fact that as the Greek and Punic worlds collide, we start to see some changes in the nature of Heracles. In the Greek tradition, for example, he's known as a famous hunter, adorned with the pelt of the Nemean lion, that's from one of his twelve labors, among other skins. Eventually, though, he starts to be depicted with tamed animals by his side, such as dogs and lions, and this is a well-known Near Eastern motif. Recall the Tyrian anecdote that we talked about in episode 1 about the discovery of purple dye. The story goes that Melkart encountered it while walking the coast with his loyal canine friend. And take this with less of a grain and more of a handful of salt, but there is even some debate over whether some of Heracles' twelve labors were actually appropriated from stories of Melkart. On top of this, we have the fact that Greek writings, which in addition to the Hebrew Bible, make up most of our primary sources on Phoenician religion, refer to Melkart as Heracles, almost as if the two are interchangeable. Herodotus, Strabo, and Josephus, he's technically Jewish or Judeo-Roman, but he still counts in this category, all refer to the temples of Melkart, specifically the ones in Cadiz and Tyre, as temples of Heracles. Furthermore, there's the fact that the, as the cult of Melkart spread to places like Malta and the Iberian Peninsula, he and Heracles were both worshipped in the same temples as the same god. So on balance, it seems that while Melkart and Heracles began as distinct deities, they eventually merged as the Greek and Punic settlers of the Mediterranean coalesced. Now it turns out that this wasn't exactly a rare occurrence as far as ancient gods go. As we were discussing at the very beginning of this episode, this happened to a lot of the Greek gods, especially due to the influence that Hellenization had in both the Near East and the Western Mediterranean. Josephine Quinn provides a solid theory for this phenomenon in In Search of the Phoenicians. According to her and other scholars, this all comes down to a simple case of needing to classify things in culturally familiar terms. You see, over the centuries, due to overpopulation and economic opportunity, colonists spread out from their homelands of Greece and Phoenicia. The Phoenicians, as we know, mostly settled in places like Cyprus, Malta, Sicily, Sardinia, North Africa, and Iberia. The Greeks, on the other hand, went to southern Italy, Sicily, and the southern coast of what is now France. This sphere, especially Sicily and the lower half of Italy, came to be known as Magna Graecia, or Greater Greece, by the early Romans. Of course, both of these peoples brought their native gods with them, as demonstrated by the Tophet sites that we find all over Phoenician settlements like Utica and Carthage. In the case of Melkart and Heracles, the idea is that these two gods fused because it was easier for the Greeks to understand Melkart in the context of a god that was already familiar to them. And since the Greek tradition is what has really been passed down to us, we see the results of all this in the myth of Heracles. As they moved farther and farther from their mother cities and were exposed to peoples whose cultures they were less familiar with, it's natural that they would try to understand those cultures in the only context they had. 
In this episode, we're going to take a look at the expansion of the Greek peoples and the Carthaginians through colonization. Both of these gods, Heracles and Melkart, allow us to trace the story of the Western Mediterranean world and just how far it extended, which is farther than you might think. While there was often trade and cooperation between the Greeks and Carthage, in many ways this was also a realpolitik struggle between a collection of city-states with imperial ambitions, one where the natives really don't have a say. So let's get into this often overlooked age of exploration. But first, some background. When we last left off, it was just after 730 BC, the year when Tyre was captured by the Assyrian king Tiglath-Pileser III. In the coming decades, the city would revolt several times but would never overcome the yoke of empire, and from this point on, the Phoenician city-states had no real political sovereignty. Carthage continued to send tithe to the Tyrians and supported their celebration of the Idrisus, but also continued trade with Egypt, which had been outright banned by the Assyrians in its former mother city. Around the same time, all throughout the 700s in fact, the demand for food in Carthage and the other trade opportunities that arose from being in its proximity prompted Phoenician colonists in the western Mediterranean to settle on the coasts of Sardinia. Now we talked about how the Carthaginians were already trading with people in Sardinia in episode 2. Remember, they were part of that trade network on the Tyrrhenian Sea that Carthage had access to. It included the islands of Malta and Sicily, as well as the Etruscan, Latin, Umbrian, Greek city-states in Italy. But now the Phoenicians were actually setting up their own commercial settlements in the south of Sardinia, all along the coast, really, and in an effort not to rely on trade with the Neuragic natives, which would have been more expensive, undoubtedly. Archaeological evidence supports this. These Sardinian settlements were very clearly constructed faster and more deliberately than their older Phoenician counterparts in other places in the Mediterranean. Richard Miles points out that neuragic pottery becomes less prevalent in Carthage over time, so it's obvious that they were somewhat screwed over by this shift in trade and migration. Moreover, worship of a Canaanite god named Sid increased throughout Sardinia, suggesting that the Neragi were assimilating with the Phoenicians and had poured the significance of a local deity into a member of the Carthaginian pantheon. By the 600s, much of the signs of Neragic settlement disappeared from the south of the island, and from the coasts as well. Overall, it seems that the early incursions of Carthage were less about imperialism directly and more about economic development like it had been with the Tyrians before them. They, unfortunately for the Neuragic people in Sardinia, were just more successful at incorporating foreign cultures. Also in the 600s, Carthage was, rather tentatively at times, making moves further into North Africa. They were already trading heavily with and financially supporting Phoenician colonies like Utica, as well as the smaller towns of Hippocara and Byzacium. They even founded new settlements in their proximity, so basically modern-day Tunisia, like the coastal town of Kirkouan. Now, we'll be discussing Kirkouan in later depth because it is so well-preserved that it's just a perfect example of a Punic settlement. So just keep that in the back of your mind for now. West of all that, in present-day Algeria, 
Carthage was building their relations with Phoenician settlements like Isle and Hippo Regius. But in addition to all this local expansion, though, Carthage extended its influence further east down the North African coast to a slew of little Phoenician colonies. Their major achievement in this region was their acquisition, or even possible founding, we don't really know, of Lepkis Magna, which today lies in the northeast of Libya. Now, all of these new colonies were pretty much just scratching the surface of North Africa. They're on the coast, you know. As Carthaginian scholar Dexter Hoyos reminds us, the native Libyan and Berber tribes were still there, and that made it a lot harder for Carthage to settle the interior. In fact, and we'll talk about this in future episodes, it's very likely that the Carthaginians were paying tribute to many of the native kingdoms during this time. Our evidence for this comes again from Justin, who mentions that when they tried to stop paying at some point in the 500s, a Libyan coalition had to put them back in their place. So, throughout the 600s, Carthage had seen some steady success in North Africa and Sardinia like we've already covered, but also in Sicily, where they had influence over the dozens of Phoenician settlements that had already been down there for centuries. They even founded a colony all the way out on Ebesus, which today we know as Ibiza. But in the year 730 BC, something occurred back in Canaan that would shake things up a bit. Tyre succumbed to an absolutely brutal siege by the Babylonians under the famous Nebuchadnezzar II. All you Civilization V fans out there might be familiar with him already. But wait, you may or may not be saying... I thought that the Assyrians had conquered Tyre and the other Phoenician cities. What happened to them? Good question, observant listener. Well, if you've read the Bible or Herodotus, or maybe you're just a fan of ancient history, you might already know. If you haven't done any of those things yet, no worries, no judgment, let's bring you up to speed. So, by the late 600s BC, the Assyrian Empire was crumbling. A combination of invasions from nomadic horse archer peoples and a pretty lousy inheritance system which usually resulted in the sons of the last king going to war with each other had brought the empire to its knees and pieces had been chipping off for a while now. In 612 BC, a coalition made up of the Neo-Babylonians, we also know them as the Chaldeans, uh, these are just the ones that made the hanging gardens, not the ones with the whole eye-for-an-eye legal system of Hammurabi, mind you. And the Medes, a half-settled, half-nomad tribe from the western part of modern-day Iran, among other groups, all finally destroyed the Assyrian capital at Nineveh after a hard-fought rebellion against their masters. The Babylonians and the Medes split the Assyrian Empire amongst themselves, and that brings us back to 573 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar added Tyre to his growing list of conquered territories. And you might be thinking, why exactly is this all relevant? I thought Tyre had no political control over Carthage anymore. And you're totally right about that, but that doesn't mean that they still didn't have an economic role in the western Mediterranean. Remember that while the Assyrians had banned Tyre from trading with Egypt and were directly overseeing the Tyrian harbors, this didn't mean that all trade had stopped. 
The trade network based around copper, silver, and other metals was still going very strong, as it was incredibly lucrative for towns and cities like Gadiz and Lixis to export goods to Tyre, who in turn could make a boatload of money, mostly for the Assyrians, and later the Babylonians, selling all throughout the Near East. There was actually so much silver in circulation that its value had started to decline, and once Babylon took Tyre, this trade network disintegrated. This severely weakened the power projection of Gadiz and other Phoenician settlements in the far west, and Carthage, pretty much unaffected due to their involvement in this other trade network, the Tyrrhenian Sea Network, were able to move in and fill the massive void that Tyre had left. So Tyre had slowly crawled out of the picture, and now they were completely absent from what had once been a vast network of their own colonies. Carthage leveraged every advantage that they had to slowly claim the old Tyrian mantle. Those towns and cities that they had been trading with and supporting to the west of them, like Utica, Hippo Regius, and Isle, Carthage brought them under their effective control. They did the same with the settlements in southern Sardinia and western Sicily that had adapted to the trade opportunities Carthage provided, as well as the island of Ibiza. How exactly did they do this then? Carthage signed treaties with all of these places, giving them further trade rights, tribute, and access to more soldiers. The cities retained their governors and thus their political autonomy. This was a much more sort of lenient empire than what we're used to. With more power projection came more distant influences on the city and its people. Historian Serge Lancel indicates the remarkable variety of cultures present in the remains of Carthage in his work, Carthage, a History. Findings range from Egyptian amulets and other magical instruments to sub-Saharan African figurines to Punic religious masks to Canaanite, Syrian, and Greek pottery. Funerary practices included everything from cremation to tophet burial. Architectural sites were just as varied. Carthage was the epitome of cosmopolitan and undoubtedly the most diverse city of this time and place. But as these chances for expansion arose, a new wave of colonization would challenge the Carthaginian dominance of the Tyrrhenian Sea. And that's where we bring things back to the double-sided coin of Melkart and Heracles. We talked about this in the beginning of the episode, but there were already some Greeks living in southern Italy and the eastern tip of Sicily. They had arrived in the 800s before Carthage was even founded. A couple of centuries later, this second wave of migration involved new ethnic groups of Greeks like the Dorians and the Ionians. Now, this was something happening parallel to all that colonization and trading that Carthage was doing in the 600s. In 630 BC, for example, settlers from what is now the popular Greek vacation island of Santorini, then called Thera, founded a place called Cyrene on the coast of Libya, east of Lepkis Magna. Herodotus recounts a great story about the journey and plights of the settlers that you should definitely check out if you have a copy of the histories lying around. What's more important to note for our purposes, though, is that among the supposed reasons he lists for the expedition was a period of drought and famine. This goes hand in hand with the idea that a lot of these further encroachments into the Punic world were driven by need and economic opportunity back in Greece. 
The Libyans nearby were not thrilled about this new development, and neither were the Carthaginians, who thought that the presence of Cyrene interfered with their control of Lepkis Magna and the rest of the region. It certainly did prevent any attempt at settlement or expansion further eastward. So the Carthaginians were getting worried about this Greek migration, and they had good reason to be. Now, as we said, the case of Cyrene was not some deliberate attempt by all of Greece to assert their dominance in Libya. That would be impossible because Greece would not be politically united for centuries to come. This isn't to say, however, that colonization provided no benefits to the Greek city-states back in the homeland. Colonies often had strong ties with the cities that founded them. The cities in Magna Graecia provided Greece proper with excellent trade ventures, and there are cases, as we shall see in later episodes, of Greek cities providing military aid to their colonies across the Adriatic. This, like much of history, is a complex subject with lots of inconsistencies. Just know that there is a balance between the realpolitik and survival-based incentives for Greek colonization. So in the 500s, waves of Greeks would head north of Magna Graecia, past northern Italy, and west into southern Gaul, which is today modern-day France, for those who are confused by that descriptor. These migrations would lead to the settlement of cities like Massalia, Antipolis, and Nicaea. Now, if you're at all acquainted with French geography, those names might sound familiar. That's because these sites eventually became the modern-day Marseille, Antibes, and Nice. Something to point out, though, was that this didn't happen all at once. Antipolis, for example, was actually first a colony of Massalia, if things weren't already complicated enough for you with this whole Greek colonization thing. Now, if you were to look at a map of the general region where this is all happening, you might notice a couple of things. To the south of Italy is, of course, Magna Graecia. We've gone over that, but once you get to central Italy, that's where Greek territory ends, and Latin territory begins. I say Latin instead of Roman because Rome was really just a city at this point and the Latins were an ethnic group that encompassed the Romans and dozens of other peoples. Further north of Latium was Etruria, the land of the Etruscans, which the observant listener might recognize as the root of the modern word Tuscany. Now how do you think the Etruscans, who were undoubtedly the major power of this region, felt about Greek incursions into their lands. And make no mistake, these were definitely incursions. Greek parties actually tried to set up mining operations in Etruria and on the Isle of Elba, which is incidentally most famous for being the prison of Napoleon more than a thousand years later. This was the catalyst for an alliance between Carthage and the Etruscan states, so it's clear that these migrations were taken as some sort of threat by the locals. While this was all going down in northern Italy, something similar was happening down in Sicily as well. The Greeks had inhabited a slice of eastern Sicily for a while now. It was technically part of that Magna Graecia region, but for age-old reasons, overpopulation and economic opportunity, probably, Sicilian Greeks as well as colonists that were new to the island started moving further west. This, of course, meant that they encountered Punic towns and cities that were already there, and competition was inevitable. Perhaps the most noteworthy of these ventures was the founding of the city of Salinas near the Carthaginian city of Motia. It was moves like these, brazenly close to their zone of control, that Carthage felt alarmed by, and they weren't the only ones. 
native to Sicily before any Punic or Greek presence were people like the Sicils and the Olymians, who allied themselves with Carthage against the people of Salinas in 580. The Phoenician cities in Sicily generally got along with the natives by means of trade, which was actually how Carthage had been able to incorporate western Sicily into its early empire, but these newer Greek colonists didn't exactly take kindly to any indigenous resistance. And now we come to Heracles. You might have forgotten that he ties into all of this somehow, because it's been a while since I've mentioned him, but he's been there in the background throughout all of our talk of Greek colonization. You see, as time wore on and the Greek world expanded to the west, old legends about Heracles and his role as the spearhead of Greek culture, legends that had once taken place in Greece proper, were now becoming about the west. Even in the oldest incarnations of the myth, Heracles had been known as an explorer. His twelve labors, you know, the ones that Hera gave him to redeem himself after she kind of made him go and murder his whole family, those had taken him far and wide, all across the Greek world, quote-unquote. These travels were eventually said to have taken place all throughout Italy, Gaul, and Iberia. One of these adventures brought him all the way to the edge of Spain, which is why our modern-day Straits of Gibraltar are known in this time as the Pillars of Hercules. This often crisscrossing route of his travels becomes known as the Heraclean Way. According to these myths, Heracles spread his worship along the Heraclean Way by constructing the colonies and temples of himself wherever he traveled. All of this was used to retroactively justify colonization of the West by many Greek settlers. There are lots of cases from North Africa to Sicily all the way along to Spain of the founders of Greek colonies claiming to be directly descended from Heracles. The Heraclean Way wasn't just an oral tradition either. It appears frequently in Sicilian Greek literature and poetry in the centuries after all of this took place. Now, prepare for what's probably a really poor analogy here, but when I was reading all of these legends about the Heraclean Way, the first image that popped into my head was that of Columbia. Columbia is an oft-forgotten feature of the American consciousness. She's a goddess in a different sense, because she's not a product of religious belief like Heracles, but of nationalism and colonialism. In case you have no idea what I'm talking about, Columbia was this symbolic goddess of America that many 19th century political figures and journalists used to represent the idea of manifest destiny. Sort of like how some old bearded dude in weird pajamas and a tailcoat and a hat, aka Uncle Sam, represents America in every poorly drawn political cartoon you see today. She was often pictured as leading the pioneers to go settle the lands of and Christianize the natives of the frontier. Now, that's part of what reminds me of this whole Western incarnation of Heracles, the part where both are being used as this figure for pioneering into uncharted, savage territory. Biggest air quotes I can find there. But just because I use that analogy, don't go thinking that this colonization was anywhere near as brutal as what we're used to in our more modern history books. For one, these natives actually stood a chance at fighting back. There wasn't a plague working against them, and the technology was pretty comparable between the two sides. 
And while there were military engagements between the indigenous peoples and the Greeks, the dynamics of the situation didn't allow for the constant massacres that Native Americans faced. But indeed, the violence was still there. Richard Miles writes of Heracles, quote, as a famed terrestrial wanderer who roamed the lands of the West, civilizing the indigenous inhabitants by abolishing savage customs and clearing away brigands and monsters, Heracles set something of a precedent for the colonists' sometimes aggressive dealing with the indigenous peoples. End quote. The lesson that we take from the Heraclean way is that these Greek ventures were never really cut and dry. Sometimes there was cooperation, sometimes, there was conquest. All of this eventually led to the religious syncretism that we opened the episode with. And even more cosmopolitan and diverse world emerged from every new settlement that dotted the Mediterranean. We see this in Carthaginian archaeology, which clearly shows an increase in things like Greek pottery, art, and architecture. As the Greek and Punic worlds collided, the distinctions between Heracles and Melkart started to crumble. But of course, only one of those gods was fated to survive the onslaught of time. This Mediterranean colonization wasn't the only pie the Carthaginians had their fingers in, though. They and their Punic siblings were also known as certainly the best seafarers and explorers of the age. While the Greeks went no farther than the Pillars of Heracles, the Phoenicians likely traveled to places as far as the British Isles. Yeah, you heard me right. You thought the Romans were the first people in our historical tradition, at least, to reach the mythical island of Britannia? You thought wrong. Trade, after all, is a universal language. And as a quick side note, I think that most of this episode has been pretty impersonal. You know, we've been talking a lot about the spread of Heracles and mapping out Greek and Carthaginian colonies all over the span of a couple hundred years without really bringing the human element much into things. I've been referring to Greeks and Libyans and Carthaginians and Sicils as if each one of these groups is some sort of hive mind when that's just not the case. I mean, all of those Greek migrations, while they may have been caused by the same shifting historical forces, were really just examples of individual people seeking glory or riches or a sense of piety or even just trying to make a better life for themselves. They came from Phokia and Boeotia and Thera and Corinth, each one acting in the confines of their culture and what they knew about the world. Well, as for this broad approach that we've been taking... There really wasn't a way around that. Like I just said, these ethnic groups aren't hive minds. There are so many different moving pieces that it would be impossible to cover all the expeditions, treaties, and skirmishes of this time without relying on the bird's eye view. But that's about to change, because I want to devote the rest of this episode to some wonderful accounts of Carthaginian seafaring and exploration. Accounts that we're super fortunate to have, even though we have to work through the bias of their Greco-Roman translators. Now, I hope that piqued your interest, because I've been super excited to tell these stories. The first one that we have to cover comes to us from Herodotus, and that gives us some clues to early attempts at Phoenician exploration beyond the Mediterranean. His story involves the circumnavigation of Africa. And yeah, you heard me right. I said the circumnavigation of Africa. That means that they supposedly traveled around the entire continent 
For this time period, that is an absolutely astounding achievement. I mean, to give you an idea of how crazy this is, the next time Africa would be ever fully circumnavigated, well, by non-natives of sub-Saharan Africa at least, was by the Portuguese in the late 15th century. A.D. The Portuguese had gunpowder and steel. They were using things like caravels and carracks, which are much closer to what we would think of as a ship than anything that they had in antiquity. The Phoenicians, on the other hand, did this with pentaconters, which had rowers for when they couldn't get enough wind in their sails. They didn't have guns, they had iron weapons. This is all just freaking mind-blowing to think about. But how do we know that this really happened? Our evidence for the Phoenician circumnavigation of Africa isn't actually archaeological. It's textual. Because, you know, Herodotus. And that might make you a bit hesitant to believe in all this. I mean, Herodotus is famously called the father of lies, as well as the father of history, right? But stick with me here, and as I read this next passage, straight from the histories, put on your historian hat and look for any details that might corroborate his tale. Herodotus writes, quote, And so I am astonished by the way some people have delineated the boundaries of Libya, Asia, and Europe since these lands actually differ quite a bit in size. In length, Europe stretches out along both the other landmasses, while in width, any attempt to compare it to the others seems futile to me. For it is clear that Libya is surrounded by water except for where it borders Asia. The first one we know of to have discovered this fact was Nekos, king of Egypt. After he had stopped excavation work on the canal, which extended from Nileb to the Arabian Gulf, he sent some Phoenicians off on boats with orders to sail around Libya and back through the Pillars of Heracles into the Mediterranean Sea and to return by that route to Egypt. And so the Phoenicians set out from the Erythraean Sea and sailed to the Southern Sea. Whenever autumn came, they would put into shore at whatever region of Libya they happened to have reached in order to sow seeds. There, they would wait for the harvest, and after reaping their crops, they would sail on again. This they did for two years, and in the third, they came around through the pillars of Heracles and returned to Egypt. They mentioned something else, which I do not find credible, though someone else may, that when they were sailing around Libya, the sun was on their right side as they went. End quote. So, right off the bat, notice how he didn't mention Carthage at all, but instead this Nekos guy from Egypt. That's because this expedition was conducted around the 700s BC by Phoenician crews hired by Pharaoh Nekos II. Now, this takes place a lot earlier than the other two stories we'll be talking about, and it provides us with some solid evidence of just how advanced Punic seafaring capabilities were at the time. Advanced enough that if this account rings true, then ventures out past the Mediterranean would definitely be possible in the 600s to 500s BC. But does this account ring true, though? Well, if you were really paying attention to that passage, you may have noticed something strange right at the end. Those last couple of lines. They mention something else which I do not find credible, though someone else may. That when they were sailing around Libya, the sun was on their right side as they went. As much as Herodotus thought this to be a trivial detail, it is actually the largest piece of evidence we have to support the veracity of this whole claim. 
You see, if you were to recreate this journey, you would start by setting off from the Red Sea, through the Gulf of Aden, following the East African coast past modern-day Somalia all the way down to the country of South Africa. Once you reach the very southern tip of Africa, you would then be moving west along the Tropic of Capricorn to follow the West African coast all the way back up to modern-day Morocco, where you would then pass through the Pillars of Heracles and make your way into Egypt once more. While you were making that westward traversal of South Africa, you would actually notice that the sun would be on your right instead of your left. This is because you've gone so far south that the sun is in a completely different position in the sky. Not only that, but experts have confirmed that this would be possible using the technology available at the time. These Phoenicians were so dedicated to exploration that they actually could have taken extra time to harvest crops in unknown lands just to ensure the full completion of the journey. Hats off to them, and thanks Herodotus, that was a seriously cool story. Next, we take a look at a Carthaginian expedition that went the opposite direction as that Egyptian-sponsored one in the 700s. Instead of heading all the way south down the coast of Africa, this one traveled north along the coast of Europe up to what is now the English Channel. We don't really have any exact dates for this expedition, but it probably took place sometime between 700 and 500 BC. It was led by a Carthaginian general named Himilco. Using a route established by Tartessus, which was an ore-rich kingdom in southern Iberia, Himilco and his fleet traveled along the coast of the Iberian Peninsula and Gaul, trading for metals with local peoples of modern-day Portugal like the Ostromimnians, and mapping out where the best goods could be acquired through exchange. They ended their voyage after four months in northwestern Gaul at a coastal region in France that we now know as Brittany. Here, they encountered a Celtic people who seemed to be absolutely swimming in tin, which they were happy to trade with Himilco's party. The Carthaginians inquired as to where these locals got their tin from and were told of two mysterious islands to the north where the metal was in abundance. These, of course, were the British Isles. The Celts had been trading with the Britons who inhabited southwestern England, or modern-day Cornwall, where tin is still found in large deposits to this day. Finally, we have the most famous of these Punic forays into terra incognita, probably because it was also the most successful. This is the journey of Hanno the Navigator. The story comes to us from a Greek translation of a Carthaginian text called the Periplus, which documents the incredible adventure. Sometime in the 500s or 400s BC, a Carthaginian statesman and general named Hanno led a government-funded expedition to West Africa with the aims of expanding the empire of Carthage farther beyond the pillars of Heracles through colonization and trade. Hanno and his fleet went out into the Atlantic and headed for the coast of northwest Africa. And when I say fleet, that's a bit of an understatement. When he set off from Carthage or Cadiz, we really aren't sure which one, Hanno was commanding a collection of 60 warships that housed some 30,000 people aboard. Remember, 30,000 was the population of Carthage about a century after its founding. Now, this is assuming that those numbers hold up and Honestly, I'm pretty skeptical, but even half of that figure is still crazy high. 
I mean, can you even imagine what 5,000 people look like on a fleet of ships? What about 15,000? What about 30,000? At some point, the numbers just stop making sense. The ancient world is just amazing, folks. And all these people had stuff with them, too. They carried with them provisions, weapons, and tools, and a whole manner of goods to trade with anyone they ran into. This wasn't just some scouting trip. This was a massive effort to bring a chunk of Northwest Africa under the influence of Carthage. So the first major stop on this whole voyage was the town of Lyxis. You remember Lyxis? It's that Phoenician colony that had once been a part of the silver trade with Tyre. The Carthaginians evidently wanted to bring the town and the surrounding area into their growing Punic hegemony. Along the way, detachments of colonists were sent ashore to found towns that dotted the Moroccan coast. The next leg of the trip went even further down the coast until Hanno settled an ideal spot for a harbor and named the colony Cerne. Hanno set off from Cerne on a smaller expedition to scout what was up ahead, which was completely foreign to them. Eventually, he ran into the opening of a river, which we know today as the Senegal River. I tell you this so that you can spot Senegal on a map and keep in mind just how far the Carthaginians are from home at this point. Go do it, and remember that nobody from this part of the world would ever get this far beyond the Mediterranean for literal millennia. So now Hanno briefly doubled back to Cerne to resupply. Once again, he set off further south, and this is where the story gets downright fascinating and a bit wacky. After several days, the fleet reached a land that was covered in sweet-smelling trees and other foliage, where vast mountains could constantly be seen in the distance. All throughout the night, the sky was constantly aflame from all the volcanic activity and glowed bright red. The people they ran into spoke a language so unfamiliar to them that not even translators they had brought from Lyxis could understand what they were saying. Most experts agree that these Carthaginians had arrived in modern-day Guinea-Bissau, which is located on the edge of that large bulge that sticks out of West Africa. After traveling even further down the coast, they could see a gigantic mountain in the distance, one that touched the sky and glowed the brightest at night from all the lava that was spewing out of it. They dubbed this mountain the Chariot of the Gods, though we know it today as Mount Cameroon. And go take a look at a map again and realize that Cameroon is several countries away from Guinea-Bissau. Hanno, I have a feeling we're not in Carthage anymore. Now, to people who had never seen terrain like this, it must have all been incredibly unnerving. It's incidentally the same feeling that a lot of West African people would describe centuries later when they were kidnapped and stuffed onto ships to be made to suffer in a world that was completely alien to them. It's a feeling almost impossible for the modern mind to imagine today, unless you put yourself on another planet like Mars or something, but it's a universal feeling. On top of all that, you have this other layer of religious and cultural beliefs as well. These people had no scientific concept of biomes or geology. They didn't have an empirical explanation for the aromatic flora or the glowing horizon. Try to put yourself in that situation, just for a little bit. This is where history can really get you going. And to top it all off, this actually is what Hanno's voyage is most famous for, are the chimps. That's right, 
These guys ran into a family of chimpanzees at some point during their excursion, and were just freaked the hell out, as you would be. The text describes it like this, quote, In the recess of this bay, there was an island, like the former one having a lake in which there was another island full of savage men. There were women too, in even greater number. They had hairy bodies, and the interpreters called them grille. When we pursued them, we were unable to take any of the men, for they all escaped, by climbing the steep places and defending themselves with stones. But we took three of their women, who bit and scratched their leaders and would not follow us. So we killed them and flayed them, and brought their skins to Carthage. For we did not voyage further, provisions failing us. <clears throat> Yikes, right? I mean, I apologize to all the animal rights activists out there, but the ancient world really is a different time. In fact, those skins were reportedly displayed inside the Temple of Baal Hamon in Carthage as a sort of trophy. Lots of stuff like that would most likely have made its way back to Carthage, because these three stories I've given you probably weren't the only times that Carthaginians or Phoenicians traveled that far out into Africa. Herodotus has another account of the Carthaginians' method for trading with the West African peoples. Quote, The Carthaginians tell us of a place in Libya outside the pillars of Heracles, inhabited by people to whom they bring their cargoes. The Carthaginians unload their wares and arrange them on the beach. Then they reboard their boats and light a smoky fire. When the native inhabitants see the smoke, they come to the shore, and after setting out gold in exchange for the goods, they withdraw. The Carthaginians disembark and examine what the natives have left there. If the gold appears to them a worthy price for their wares, they take it with them and depart. If not, they get back in their boats and sit down to wait while the natives approach again and set out more gold until they satisfy the Carthaginians that the amount is sufficient. Neither side tries to wrong the other, for the Carthaginians do not touch the gold until it equals the value of their goods, nor do the natives touch the goods until the Carthaginians have taken away the gold. End quote. So this passage hints that although large expeditions were rare, maybe there were some established systems in place for trading with the people of West Africa. What are the implications of all this? It certainly changes the way that we think about our past, you know. I remember sitting in my high school world civilizations class where the only time we learned about the early western Mediterranean was in the context of Rome. I hope this episode makes it clear that there is so much more to this region than just its later involvement in Roman history. It really changes what we think and know about the past. I mean, we've mainly been focusing on the Phoenicians and Carthaginians who controlled the coastlines and islands. We haven't even discussed in depth the Etruscans or the Celts or the Naragi or Sicils or Celtiberians or Lusitani or Tartessians. All these cultures and more were interacting and rubbing shoulders. This whole ecosystem was scattered with worship of Melkar and other Punic gods, and thus it was largely facilitated by this Punic world that Carthage was rapidly becoming the center of. All this existed before the arrival of the Greeks, too, and we see its traces in the way it shaped good old Heracles. And this was all mostly done through diplomacy, religion, and trade, which often get labeled as boring by your average person compared to, you know, conquest. I wanted to show you all that this is not the case, that there is wonder to be found 
everywhere you look in history, and I really hope I succeeded in this episode. In the coming episodes, though, conquest is going to become a more important tool in Carthage's belt, as they get a bit more aggressive with their empire building. There will be conflicts abound in Spain, Sardinia, Libya, and especially with the Greeks in Sicily, next time on Wonders of History.